Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, NPR national correspondents Kirk Siegler and Layla Fadel. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend. It is a treat when I have both my panelists in an actual studio with me. I can see them right now. Hello to you both. Layla Fadel, NPR national correspondent covering diversity, culture, and race. And Kirk Siegler, NPR national correspondent covering America's rural-urban divide. You're still yawning, Kirk. Hi, Sam. Hi. No, I'm not. You can't see that. <laughs> Hi, Layla. Hi. Let's talk about music for a second. I'm playing a little kiss. Layla it's likes pretty it. pretty good. Yeah? I mean, it's good. What's the connection? The connection is there's a news story this week involving oh, Kiss yeah. and Great White Sharks. Did y'all see this one? I heard about this, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that song is their classic, I Want to Rock and Roll All Night. Uh, Kiss is in the news this week because they're set to perform some of their songs in a concert put on by Airbnb on November 18th in Port Lincoln, Australia. But here's the catch. It's a concert for Great White Sharks. Wait, I mean, like to protect, to protect, like to call for no, protection, for like a fundraiser? Just like, like they're to make them listen. happy. Yeah, so they're selling this event on Airbnb for eight lucky people. They'll be able to go on a boat. And the thinking is, sharks like really low tones. Anyways, this Airbnb posting is epic. It says, quote, as Kiss rocks out above water, you'll also get to see what's down under it. Watch from a glass-bottom boat as the music attracts the legendary band's biggest underwater fans. Kiss has played plenty of wild shows in the past, but this one will top them all. So wait, so the sharks are attracted to the bass and the music? I think so. Uh, the tickets are $52 a person. Would y'all pay that much money to go hang out on a boat with Kiss and some sharks? Mm, actually, that's not very expensive. For... Yeah. I just, uh, I mean, to go to the Hollywood Bowl or something, you're up at $100. <laughs> All right. This event is actually sponsored by the Australian Marine Conservation Society. All proceeds go to, like, protect the ocean and stuff. So I guess it's for a good cause? Yeah. $52 is a yeah. pretty good deal. Are there fees? Does that include fees? Glass the cleaning fee? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the carnage fee? Okay. What's the safety <laughs> issue? What's the safety? Like, what are the safety <laughs> protocols? Airbnb carnage All right, now it's time to talk about the news news. Um, Every week we start the show having our panelists describe their week of news in only three words. Kirk Siegler, you're up first. Uh, My three words are fasten your seatbelts. Okay. This is a, a regarding the story I'm working on, looking at the uh, concern of an uptick in domestic extremism and potential violence and threats now that the impeachment inquiry has begun. Wait, so the impeachment inquiry, some experts think, will lead to a rise in extremism. Yes. And in fact, we've seen, according to hate group monitors uh, and people who monitor and, and track domestic extremism, both you know in practice and online and threats, Uh, A spike uh, that's been reported in the last few months, but especially since the inquiry happened and online, I'm looking at a tweet by the militia group, the Oath Keepers. Um, Yeah, so we should reference. So the backstory with this Oath Keepers tweet and Donald Trump, this past Sunday, Donald Trump tweeted 
something to the effect of if Democrats keep up their investigations, it would cause a rift like the Civil War. A Civil War like fracture. He was uh, quoting a pastor from Fox News. This is sort of uh, or who spoke on Fox News this is kind of classic Trumpian move yeah. here sort of to he won't talk say about it, it. quote someone who says it. Walk it back a bit. Right. And so the Oath Keepers, uh, and we should say it's not this big one monolithic group, the militias and the far right uh, extremists and the white nationalists, they're not all, they can't all be lumped together, nor can you say that they're necessarily organized. But there is a tweet from the Oath Keepers, this paramilitary group that says- In response to the Civil War tweet from Trump. Exactly. uh, The right has zero trust or respect for anything the left is doing. We are on the verge of a hot civil war. There have also been- Videos posted from uh, another group, the Three Percenters, saying that they're, you know, inferring that there could be a call to arms if President Trump is impeached or Hmm. if this moves forward. Um, So, But is this different than Republicans and folks who support Trump getting mad about the whole um, investigation? Is there something different going on with these white nationalists? Do they see it differently? They do. And it may not just be, at least according to hate group monitors I've been speaking to and reporting this story or beginning to report this story, may not just be here in the U.S. You know, there's this whole sort of undercurrent of uh, white nationalism that has bubbled back up. Um, Hmm. I think you could make the case that it's always been here, but it's bubbled back up. And here in the U.S., there's been a spike. And there's a whole narrative that the white homeland is under attack and white people are under attack. Hmm. And whether you can tie that to the impeachment uh, is up for debate. But there's a clear connection to be made between some of the rhetoric of these groups feeling as though their president is under attack for these very reasons. Their president who has, you know, called for or at least courted them. And so even though Trump is not speaking about the impeachment inquiry in any racialized terms, it seems as if his talk about it is inflaming far-right white nationalists in a racialized way. That's what will get borne out, I think, in the weeks to come. I'm not trying to punt, but we just don't know at this point. Yeah. What we do know are the facts that, according to uh, you know FBI statistics, we are seeing a spike in white supremacist violence. And um, the concern in particular for uh, one expert I talked to, actually just down the road at Cal State Stan, uh, San Bernardino, Brian T. Levin, mm-hmm. um, Professor Brian Levin, he says what the real concern may be is more lone wolf-type attacks. When we have a political event, that can be a catalyst for not only an increase in hate crime, but also in political violence overall, as well as instances of terrorist plots and actual achieved attacks. So fasten your seatbelts, folks. So, Layla, you have covered domestic terror attacks before. Mm -hmm. And I think the big question with all of this is whether or not rhetoric from the president directly contributes to these attacks. Yeah, I mean, as we've seen, there's a lot of language that we'll see being used in political rhetoric that is then sort of being co-opted, reiterated, almost. co-opted. Yeah. And then we saw it in the in what the uh, El Paso shooter wrote, the use of infestation, invasion, all of this language that's coming out um, of Washington. And so you're seeing a lot of this this fear and this tension 
among people when they hear words like civil war. Yeah. Like right away, we all like, were like, Whoa. What? what does that mean? And, yeah. and, and there's a lot of communities that definitely feel more vulnerable in this moment yeah. because that language might be associated with, yeah. with them. I also find that the framing of the impeachment debate and the impeachment inquiry, it feels very Beltway focused. What are Democrats saying? What's the GOP saying? What's happening on the Hill? Right. But we have to remember that these conversations and these debates play out across the entire country and people of all different stripes pick up different messages based on who's saying what. Well, and also it's it's worth pointing out that there's not a whole lot of focus on what the actual allegations are and what the implications yeah, are. Yeah. But at the same time, the uh, far right media and likely to the ex- certain extent the far left media has its own narrative and we're already very tribal. This is what the experts are worried about in particular, the hmm. hate group monitors that were so bifurcated and uh, – tribal and divided and there's also an erosion of faith in the institutions. Yeah. These sort of are the breeding grounds for extremism. domestic extremism. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here at NPR West with two guests, Kirk Siegler, NPR national correspondent covering America's rural urban divide. Rural. rural. I can never get it right. Rural. Brewery. 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 Rural. Yeah. <laughs> and Layla Fottle, NPR national correspondent covering diversity, culture, and race. Layla, you have three words? Who is protected? Mm. What are you talking about? Um, so I've been working on a piece around these three cases that the Supreme Court will be hearing next week. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's about Title VII. Okay. And the argument or the controversy around this is what does sex mean? Yeah. So these three cases... Tell me what the three cases are and how they're tied to Title VII. Well, the three cases are there's two on on sexual orientation and one on gender identity. And Title VII is basically the federal statute that says you cannot discriminate against somebody at work Mm -hmm. based on sex. Gotcha. And the idea is what does sex mean and does it include Mm -hmm. sexual orientation and gender identity? Gotcha. And these three cases are dealing with? Employment discrimination. Gotcha. So there's one case in which uh, a transgender person was fired. Mm-hmm. Um, from work, mm-hmm. another for being trans, for being for being a transgender woman, and then there's two cases in which these people say they were fired because of their sexual orientation. So, Layla, you've been reporting on one couple that could be affected by these rulings on Title VII. Uh, this story starts with a woman from Montana. So basically, she lives in Montana, in Billings, Montana. And mm-hmm. Billings, Montana is one of those places that has no local protections. Gotcha. Less than half the country have state laws that say explicitly, mm-hmm. you should not be discriminated against. Mm-hmm. You are a protected class, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then some cities and towns have their own ordinances. If mm-hmm. their state doesn't have one, they'll pass their own. So some gotcha. city, five cities and towns in Montana okay. have their own ordinances. Billings, the largest in Montana, is not one Does of not. them. So this lesbian couple right. is so there. So they move to this town because... Kathleen O'Donnell, the the woman I speak to, it, is from there, and they have a 10-year-old son, and they want to be near her family. Yeah. Um, and they get there, and the first thing that happens to them is they go to get a house, uh-huh. and the landlord says, all right, fill in your application. Mm-hmm. And she puts her wife's name down, which mm-hmm. is Casey, could be a man, could be a woman. Yeah. And the landlord says, girl or boy? Oh. And she says, girl. Uh-huh. And the guy says, I don't rent to your kind. That's what she said. Your kind? Okay. That's exactly what okay. he said to her. Okay. And she looks up things on the state website and she realizes like, I don't have that much recourse and yeah. I don't have time to fight this. Yeah. Moves on, finds a place somewhere else. Two years later, she gets a job at a, a car dealership. Mm-hmm. 
She's there for about six months, and mm-hmm. pretty quickly, she says the owner's son is commenting on her looks, uh, uh, calling her Bob and Bill versus her name Kathleen. Oh. So she already feels. She said most people were pretty nice, but she already feels a little uncomfortable. But mm-hmm. it's a job. She has a son. Yeah, you know, and so six months into that. Uh, right before her probationary period ends, she's called in and um, her supervisor talks to her. And I'll play you a little bit of tape of her describing what happens. Okay. And so originally he you know, said, hey, I have to fire you by Monday um, because the owner has told me I'm required to. And I looked at him and I was like, well, why am I being fired? I was like, I've never been in trouble. I've shown up to work. And he's, he said, it's because the owner does not like that you're gay. And she says she called the Montana um, uh, State Employment Authorities, mm-hmm. and they said, there's nothing we can do for you. Really? And then the other thing that, um, in speaking to legal scholars, they said this doesn't stop with Title VII, which is employment. Mm. But then what does it mean for housing and public accommodations and all these other parts of mm-hmm. life that are so essential? Yeah. Does it then ripple effect into yeah. those areas? Yeah. How, I mean, we know that right now the Supreme Court is skewing a bit right, but Folks that watch the court, do they expect them to rule a certain way on this stuff, or do we just not know yet? I mean, we don't know. Okay. I think we really don't know, and especially in cases like this. And then the other thing is, is it? it's very unlikely, but it's possible that the court says, yes, it protects gender identity, but does mm-hmm. not protect sexual orientation, or oh. vice versa. Unlikely, it will probably rule one way, but I think everybody's closely watching yeah. uh, what the Supreme Court yeah. does. And, yeah. and this is not happening in a vacuum. There are so many things going on where um, LGBTQ people feel that they're at the front lines of a renewed battle about their rights yeah. and whether they get to have uh, yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and just hearing you talk about this story, yeah, um, I think for a lot of Americans— after the Supreme Court, you know, legalized same-sex marriage, a lot of folks were like, okay, they got it. Yeah. They're good. And the struggle for this community is not over yet at all. Do you have a sense for what the general public thinks about this? I only say this yeah. because, like, when I spend a lot of time in smaller towns, conservative places, yeah. I haven't done a lot of stories on this issue. But it does feel like what Sam said. There was this victory for gay rights groups. And it kind of doesn't feel like that big of an issue. I mean, Yeah. So so actually, that's funny because um, in this particular town in 2014, when they tried to pass a non-discrimination ordinance, the then mayor said, Billings is just not ready. But a lot of people in Billings were like, we're ready. (laughs) You you might not be ready, but we're ready. Are the policymakers in line with actually where the public is, even in conservative places? Exactly. Time for a break. Coming up. We're going to get funky. We're going to talk about funk music. (laughs) I interviewed a musicologist who makes the case that funk music is back in a very big way on Top 40 Radio. Don't yawn, Kirk. Get excited about funk music. Yeah, come on. Am I going to have to dance? Yes, you are, Okay, good, good. After the break. I'm actually happy to. After the break, my panelists will dance to funk music. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. With a franchise network of highly trained agents and advanced marketing tools, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services network members aim to provide something more than just real estate. They think beyond the next transaction and build relationships based on your long-term goals to ensure you'll get all the value that home brings, year after year, home after home. All that more they do, 
That's home services. Start your home search at BerkshireHathawayHS.com. Support also comes from Sony Pictures Entertainment, presenting Black and Blue, the high-stakes action thriller in theaters October 25th. Starring Academy Award nominee Naomi Harris as a rookie cop who inadvertently captures a murder on her body cam. She teams up with the only person willing to help her, Tyrese Gibson, as she tries to escape from both the criminals out for revenge and the police who are desperate to destroy the body cam footage. Don't miss Black and Blue, only in theaters October 25th. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA, and this week we bring you a portrait of Isabel Allende. My job as a writer, as an activist, as a philanthropist, as a feminist, is to create awareness and to say, okay, this is what I see. It's Latino USA from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here at NPR West with two guests. Layla Fottle, NPR national correspondent covering diversity, culture, and race. And Kirk Siegler, NPR national correspondent covering America's rural-urban divide. Hi, Sam. I, I like saying rural. I like rural. it. Rural. rural. Try saying rural. it in every story. It's difficult rural. on the radio. <laughs> As you know, we talk about music a fair amount on this show, which I like. <laughs> uh, this year is coming to a close pretty soon, and I am beginning to think about how to sum up this year in music. There's been so much that seems new and fresh, but there's also been, on the radio, a lot of stuff that sounds a bit throwback. So Nate Sloan, a friend of this show and host of the Vox podcast, Switched on Pop, he argues that that throwback that I'm hearing, it's a return to one of America's greatest musical genres. It's the glorious return of funk. Nate says funk has stealthily infiltrated pop in 2019 and for the last few years. I asked Nate to make his case and explain to me why this is happening right now. I'm a sucker for I want to start with like 14 seconds from a hit song. We actually have talked about it we on have. the show before. You like this song. This is the Jonas Brothers Sucker, and I want to start about a minute 55 into this track because something remarkable happens. Those drums are, dare I say, funky? I don't know what else to call them. <laughs> that moment where the texture drops down to just this drum break and a whistled melody is like ripped from another time and yeah. place. It's giving me like definitely throwback. It feels kind of like the Amen drum break. It yes. feels a little bit like just stuff that I would hear from someone like James Brown or something. James Brown is exactly where I wanted to go because I feel like this track is almost like a portal through time and space that takes you back to the original funky drummer, James Brown's uh, drummer for many years, Clyde Stubblefield. One, two, three, four, get it! I'm into it. Yeah. The Jonas Brothers channeling James Brown. I'm not mad at it. I think it signals uh, a moment that when I was growing up, I could have never anticipated, which is these sounds of 60s and 70s funk making their way back into yeah. pop music. And not just pop music, into indie music, into R&B, yeah. into all kinds of different genres. Yeah. So I want to talk about a second example yeah. of funk re-entering the mainstream. It's only October right now, mm -hmm. but I'm feeling like 2019 is going to be the year of Lizzo. And one of her biggest songs of the year, and my favorite song of hers so far, Juice, it sounds hella funky. Oh, yeah. Mirror, mirror on the wall, don't say it because I know I'm cute. Oh, baby. Louis down to my drawers, LV 
that guitar, the little ooh babies. Yeah. Juice is a masterclass. I mean, this is a particular brand of Prince-inspired 1980s electro-funk okay. or something. And she is from Minneapolis. There you go. Hometown of Prince. At the same time, I, I want to celebrate the return of funk, but also recognize that in its modern form, it's not like necessarily a one specific set of musical characteristics. Mm-hmm. It's more of like a broad musical palette that always involves heavy syncopation, like uh-huh. we hear in all these tracks, interlocking melodies. Mm-hmm. It involves this kind of vocal approach, this like bombastic, raw, leaving it all out on the floor kind of approach to singing. If I had to say how I know it's funk when I hear it, there's like a secret voice in the song that's like, get up! (laughs) It's just telling you to get up. (laughs) And like, I don't know, like, for, for for people hearing us talk now that are gonna want to be able to identify funk when they hear it on the radio, yeah. what should they listen for? Okay, let's let's do a few like kind of classic funk elements. There's that guitar you okay. were talking about. You can yeah. hear it at the start of the Lizzo track we just listened to, mm-hmm. and you can also hear it at the probably one of the songs that first comes to mind of recent vintage that features funk, Uptown Funk by Bruno oh, Mars yeah, let's hit that. and Mark Bronson. Man, every wedding reception <laughs> for the last several years has had someone's uncle spraining his ankle to this song. Yeah, and this not only does this feature that funk guitar, it features those same kind of get on up vocals. Yeah, yeah, that and you the were horns. talking about and the horns. Yeah, and then I think it also points to another aspect of funk that I love is this sense of kind of interlocking melodies and rhythm. Hmm. Vocals, guitar, horns, if you listen, they're all kind of bouncing off one another, all adding up to this mosaic, this funk tapestry of (laughs) rhythm and melody that once it gets going, you're just kind of, I don't know, you can't resist it. Yeah. So then, okay, so if we're seeing a resurgence of funk, that means it wasn't around for a while. Where did it go, and why is it coming back now? That's a great question. All I know is when I was growing up in, you know, the 90s and 2000s, I was obsessed with funky music. Mm-hmm. My yearbook quote was actually a line from the Parliament song, Mothership Connection. <laughs> Put a glide in your stride. Put a glide in your stride and a dip in your hip and come on to the mothership. <laughs> I love it. And I think at the same time, there was this cresting wave that I wasn't totally aware of. You know, D'Angelo was releasing Voodoo right at the mm-hmm. turn of the millennium. Mm-hmm. A few years later, Amy Winehouse would release Back to Black, yeah. featuring the same drummer, Homer Steinweiss, yeah. that we heard on that Jonas Brothers track. And the same producer, Mark Ronson, and the same right? Producer, Mark Who Ronson. did Bruno Mars's Uptown Funk. Exactly. Okay. So this wave was rising, but I feel like it didn't really fully crash until just a few years ago. Yeah. And I think one reason is that something that people and myself included are rediscovering is not only the sound of funk, but the political and social world of funk. Okay. And I think when we're reviving that style now, it's not just for the sonic qualities, it's also for the kind of Afro-futurist worldview that that music projected. Now, uh, some folks will be hearing the term Afro-futurist for the first time. Mm. I feel that in my bones, but explain this to people. I'll cite a writer 
and artist named Natrice Gaskins. Afrofuturism is about recognizing the, the past, present, and future of blackness as one entity that can be expressed forward and backwards. And what this allows you to do is create this continuum of African-American life and imagine both new possibilities and sort of reinscribe mm. some of the more painful history of, okay. of that experience. Yeah. Well, and it also feels like there is an embrace of blackness with funk that becomes almost post-racial and post-genre. Yeah. There is no hesitation or hatred for the Jonas Brothers <laughs> doing that funk in the same way that we see Lizzo doing it. Yeah. And some of what I hear in the resurgence of, fu- of funk right now is this desire for our music to be a bit more post-genre and post racial hierarchy because there were some I mean there was a long time in music popular music where it was white music and black music and there was a dividing line funk seems to not care about those lines I agree I mean it's inherently a broad and encompassing and even welcoming kind of style of music that's part of the point is to have this message of positivity you know it's taking the the name itself funk comes from the beads of sweat and the stanky odor (laughs) you get dancing your butt off to this music and there's kind of a a beautiful spiritual release that comes along with that so then if we're in this wonderful funk moment Mm. Where do you think it's going next? I won't make any predictions, but I might use a track uh, like King James by Anderson Pock okay. as, a, as a sort of bellwether for mm-hmm. the future of funk. We've been through it all, though it could be worse. Because I think when I was growing up and putting um, Parliament Funkadelic lyrics as my yearbook quote, <laughs> again, I wasn't really thinking of the sort of political and, and social aspect of this music, but in a song like King James, Anderson Pock really nicely shows how those two things are related. He sings, there's a movement we've been grooving on. That is like the conflation of bodily movement and social movements Uh, kind of in one lyric. Yes. And I I like to think that's where this funk sound might be headed. Nate Sloan, one of the hosts of the Vox podcast, Switched on Pop. So glad you were here for this most funky conversation. Thanks so much for having me and funky very much. Thanks again to Nate Sloan, musicologist at the University of Southern California and host of the Vox podcast, Switched on Pop. It's all about pop music. What? Okay, if y'all were in control of Top 40 Radio, what musical genre would you bring back into the fold? Hmm. I mean, uh, I can only think of genres that I would not bring back in. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> grunge, grunge. I was okay with disco. Grunge. Disco. Oh, shut your face. Disco was great. Disco, is, yeah. I mean, what is there to bring back at this point? I it would seems bring like everything's back, back. I would bring back mid '90s Shania Twain country, country pop. Isn't that here though? Is it? I mean, yeah, a little Who? bit. 
What's a little Casey Musgraves. Yeah, exactly. I was saying, I was like, what's I was her unearthing. I can't remember lyrics or names. Of ours. I was like, I know what I like. Yeah. For for a reunion recently, I was unearthing uh, pop songs from like 1992, and there's a whole genre of that very mm-hmm. thing with like this this one song, Tammy Wynette, uh, sampled with like an electronic beat behind it. Into it. Yeah. Yeah. Into it. I would almost entertain that coming back. Yeah. Because it was kind of catchy. Very crossover. Anyway. It's time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game. Who said that? You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Hey, Asma, I think it's time for a big change. All right, what does that mean? I think it's time to make the NPR Politics Podcast a daily podcast. Well, we do have more than ample news. You and I are on the campaign trail, it seems like, nonstop. And now there's an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. So starting this week, the NPR Politics Podcast will be in your feed every weekday to keep you up to date ahead of the 2020 election. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The NPR Politics Podcast, now five days a week. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here in studio with two guests, Kirk Siegler, NPR national correspondent covering America's rural-urban divide, and Layla Fottle, NPR national correspondent covering diversity, culture, and race. Layla, Kirk, it is time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Ooh, saying that? I'm excited. It's my favorite game, too. Okay, good. I get nervous. <laughs> Even though I'm terrible at it. Every I time I've been on. Trivia games, like, they're like, what's your name? I'm like, I know this one. The <laughs> <laughs> thing about this game is that it really doesn't matter. It's so low stakes. The winner gets absolutely nothing. I share a quote from the week. Uh, y'all have to guess who said it or what story that I'm referring to. And that's it. It's fine. doesn't matter. Is it first come, first serve? First come, first, loser, first serve. No buzzers. All you get is bragging rights. <laughs> All right, first quote. This one's fun. The quote is, oh, I'm thrilled to be part of reggae. No clue. This is, oh, how can I give you a clue? Um, This is an actress riffing on her role in one of the biggest reggae songs of all time. So it's got to be like a Bob Marley song. song. No, the song has the word murder in it. Murder, she wrote. Oh, yeah. Murder, she wrote. Murder, she wrote. Oh. And that's a show. Who stars in that show? Oh. And, uh, Say it. Uh, What's her name? Say you were there. What, Angela Lansbury? Yes. Okay. Wow, that yes. was... Woo! <laughs> By the way, this is the first time I think I've ever gotten an answer. Even With some help. We need to cut this to question. This is too embarrassing. <laughs> All right, Wait, so... Wait, who sings that song? Okay, backstory, backstory, backstory. Um, Angela Lansbury, Broadway star and star of the classic show Murder, She Wrote, was interviewed this week on the CBC by Radio Q DJ Tom Power. And he said to Angela Lansbury, did you know that your iconic role on this iconic show inspired one of the biggest reggae songs of all time, Murder, She Wrote? So, Angela, that's... Have you ever heard that before? No. That is reggae dance hall like masters, Shaka Demas and Pliers. That's their song, Murder, She Wrote. (laughs) That's very funny. (laughs) 
uh, are they? Uh, what are they? A group? Uh. Yeah, they're sort of like <laughs> legends. Legends in in reggae music. Oh, reggae! Go! Oh, oh, I'm thrilled to be part of reggae. Of course, <laughs> I'm thrilled That's to be part of reggae. Sweetest. Is it not the sweetest thing? It's the sweetest thing. It. Also, how did she not know? I thought everyone knew that. I was almost going to say it was like UB40 or something. Kirk, you got that one. I should just give you half a point. You had a lot of assistance. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, as I said, it's like the first one I think I've ever gotten in being on this show. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kirk, you're up one zip. Layla, it's yes. okay. You have time still. You have time. It's okay. All right, next quote. Ready? He was able to run and play on the grounds. He had a swimming pool. He was able to experience the elements. It's a very interesting animal story from this week. I'm the only animal story I can think of is that lady that jumped in the cage with the lion. (laughs) (laughs) Not that one. Although, cray cray. (laughs) Don't do that. This Uh, is out of New York. Think of a big animal that you should not have in your apartment. I can think of a lot of big animals I should not have in my Uh, apartment. Come a on. big animal that you shouldn't a have lion? in your apartment. A horse. A horse. So close. So a donkey, very close to a lion. A tiger? Yes. Layla, you got it. Who has a tiger? <laughs> I mean, is this like some arms dealer? You haven't heard? Okay, this story is bananas. Wait for it. I'm going to tell you all about it. Um, that quote comes from Ellen Carnival. She is the owner of the Noah's Lost Ark Exotic Animal Sanctuary in Berlin Center, Ohio. And she was talking about the death of one of their most famous residents, Ming, a Bengal tiger. So Ming, before he was at this sanctuary in Ohio, he spent the first three years of his life as a pet in a Harlem apartment. (gasps) That's so mean. No, a guy in Harlem had the tiger living with him since it was a little kitten with an alligator named Al. And for years, they lived in this Harlem apartment together. How big was this apartment? (laughs) In New York, can't be that big. Exactly. (laughs) Roughly the size of the studio, possibly smaller. Ming had a corner. So Ming was rescued or taken into custody, take your pick, by New York City police officers after he bit his owner in 2003. But there was a happy ending because Ming ended up in this sanctuary in Ohio and lived there happily for years. He died a few months ago, but there was coverage of his death uh, just this month. But the story, in spite of being totally bananas, just screams out to me, it's begging for a Netflix movie. Yeah. <laughs> the guy in his apartment raising the, the tiger and the alligator. Totally. And I'm hoping that they make this movie and let Terry Crews be the lead. <laughs> I think the game is tied. Mm. And we both had a lot of assistance. So you really. Did. I'm happy to assist. I'm happy to assist. Um, oh, y'all aren't going to get this one. I already know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't like your attitude. <laughs> we've, we've been such failures on the first two. It's okay. Y'all can do it. All right. Last quote. Yo, Kanye West, is my verse about the devil still on Jesus? Y'all are never going to get this one. (laughs) Well, but I saw that Kanye was in Wyoming the other day. Yeah, he's been all over the place. He's been a mess. Does this have something to do with his church? Yeah, his church is traveling church. This quote has something to do with it. Yes, so the church stuff is Kanye West doing a bunch of gospel-themed concerts in advance of the release of what's supposed to be a gospel Christian-themed album. Okay. That quote comes from someone who is unsure whether they're going to be on the album or not. A rapper named Young Thug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their faces. 
Oh, yeah. I'm never going to know that. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so here's the story. It is about Kanye West. Um, mumble rapper Young Thug recently asked... Wait, wait, wait. What's a mumble rapper? You they mumble rap in a way rap? where it's hard to understand what they're saying. Oh, that's purpose. intentional. That's a real thing? Yes. That's in per- okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. We are totally that, Well, that, also, that actually makes me feel a little bit better, actually. <laughs> so it's like, what am I... Uh, what the, have I been missing? It just shows that I am literally, like, the most uncool person. It's okay. Mumble rapper Young Thug, he tweeted publicly at Kanye West asking him if a verse he recorded for West's upcoming album is actually going to still happen and be on the album. So the album is, is supposed to be called Jesus is King. And Young Thug was upset because at a private listening party for the album, Kanye played the whole thing and his verse didn't air. So he's like, what's happening? Will I be on this thing? Also, Kanye West promised his album to his fans last Friday. Mm-hmm. It just didn't happen. He didn't release the album, and everyone's like, what's going on? I can't tell if Kanye West has, like, a long game and he knows what he's doing or if he's just really erratic. Yeah, me neither. I still love him. I love him so much. You do? I really do. <laughs> I love Kanye West. He's a mess, but I love him. He's interesting. That's for sure. <laughs> Kirk's just remaining silent. <laughs> Anyways, that was a long way to tell you that we each, in a first, have one point. Yeah. <laughs> I think, but that's not fair. You wrote the question. Uh, well, I did. <laughs> I, I knew about the church. I feel like I won. You know what? <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I'm the one who brought up the church. I think the winner this week of the game that. is our engineer, Josh, because behind the glass, <laughs> I could He's tell that he everything. knew every quote. Yeah. Josh, and he's judging us silently. He's judging us. Yes, Josh as he won. should be. As he should be judging us. <laughs> he should be. And now the world will too. Uh huh. Uh huh. All right. Congratulations to all of us. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every Friday, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They do. Brent, hit the tape. Hi, Sam. This is Christopher from Carmel, New York. The best part of my week was finally finishing the fence at my house so my dog would be allowed outside off-leash. Don't worry, I definitely sent pictures. Thank you, have a good week. Hey Sam, it's Stephanie in Greensboro, North Carolina. The best part about my week was that I just turned 50 and we had an awesome party with tons of my favorite people and it was so much fun. The best part of my week is celebrating five years of being clean and sober. I did my first full distance triathlon in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I got together with my three college roommates. We've been friends for over 16 years now. Every time we get together, it's like food for the soul. Hi Sam, this is Marnie Penning Coleman from Falls Church, Virginia. And the best thing that happened to me all week was that I got to take my seven-year-old son out of the country for the first time and watching him experience another culture through his eyes was the best thing that has happened to me in a long time. Hey Sam, this is Savannah calling from California, and the best thing that happened to me this week was my grandmother and I just shared a beautiful moment where she remembered who I am. She is about 10 years into her Alzheimer's diagnosis, and I've been her caregiver for the last four and a half years, and most days she has no idea who I am, but about five minutes ago I asked if she remembers me, and she looked me in the eyes and said, you're my Savannah, and I think this little moment just made the last hard four and a half years very worth it. Thank you. Have a great week. Thanks for the show. Bye. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Thanks to everyone who sends those in every week. Many thanks to 
Christopher, Stephanie, Drew, Kelly, Nicole, Marnie, and Savannah. We listen to all of these that come in, and we want you to keep them coming. You can record the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself on your phone and send that voice file to me via email at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. Um, it is time to say goodbye to y'all right now. We're going to go out uh, like we came in, playing some Kiss. Oh, thanks, Sam. You're welcome. This is Kiss in their classic, I Want to Rock and Roll All Night playing it because if you go to airbnb right now you can for 52 dollars buy a ticket to go see a kiss concert on a boat in australia in a performance for great white sharks 2019 is the weirdest timeline <laughs> it, it is i feel like we should go find a karaoke bar right now though. let's do it yeah i'm in i don't know the words of this song yeah yeah well they give is you the kiss aussie i mean acdc is aussie where is they're like they're like Detroit, right? New York. Okay. Okay. New York. Josh has all the answers today. Josh is like, I am so tired of you both. <laughs> How do you know nothing? So in the dark. <laughs> Uh, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, and Jason Fuller. Our fearless editors are Kitty Isley and Alex McCall. Our engineer is Josh Newell. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, keep rocking and rolling all night. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. <laughs> <laughs>